Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow Exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times Somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago Just to up and leave it There is a fresh new blog on the Pheasants Forever website that recently caught my attention. It's titled, Play Small Ball or Swing for the Fences. The baseball reference obviously grabbed my attention, but the subhead adds a little bit more context for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever audiences. It says, all pheasant nesting cover is critical but some sizes and configurations work better than others. The fundamental question in this blog starts with its lead sentence. If given a choice, would we rather add pheasant nesting habitat to the landscape as a few big chunks or dispersed as a bunch of little ones? So joining me on today's Quick Hitter podcast to answer this timeless question of does size matter is the author of this blog, our very own Dr. Scott Taylor and the National Wild Pheasant Conservation Plan Coordinator. Scott, welcome back. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, You have been on one podcast with me before, but it's been a while. Um, so, so for folks that don't know you, um, let's let's start with an introduction about who you are, a little bit about where you grew up, your career path, and then take us to what you do today as the National Wild Pheasant Conservation Plan Coordinator. Okay, so I'm a native Kansan. I grew up in uh, eastern Kansas, Topeka, and uh, around that area. And um, went to school at uh, Kansas State and Texas A&I, which is now Texas A&M at Kingsville. Hmm. Um, so you know you're getting old when they change the name of your <laughs> um, And then um, University of Wisconsin at Madison. Um, most of my graduate work at both Texas A&I and, and UW was on Bob White quail. Huh studying them in Texas and Kansas. And after I was done with uh, 12 years of college, I spent 20 years uh, with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I was the Upland Game Program Manager and several other administrative positions there, um, as I said, for about 20 years. And then in 2016, we had this uh, new opportunity on the, on the horizon called the National Wild Pheasant Conservation Plan that was coming together and um, the states involved in that uh, decided they wanted to hire, hire a coordinator to uh, help carry out some of the some of the tenets of the plan. So I was hired in 2016 and spent a few years in Brookings, South Dakota, my first years um, doing that position. And uh, I'm now located in Manhattan, Kansas, closer to uh, where I started. So um, been here for about three years. So it, you're the first and only employee to ever hold this particular position as the National Pheasant Plan Coordinator. Is that right? That's correct. So the, 
the state wildlife agencies, uh, a number of them in the in the pheasant range, uh, wrote the first edition of the national plan back in 2013. That was before there was a coordinator. Um, one of the first things they wrote into that first edition of the plan was, you know, if we really want to get things done differently than we're doing now, uh, we need somebody to uh, you know, carry water for, for the group full time. And so hmm. uh, one of the initial objectives of the, the, that initial plan uh, was to hire a coordinator. So it took a few years to get uh, the stars to line up and the money to come together, but uh, about 20 states uh, are contributing funding uh, to my position as well as Pheasants Forever. So it's a, it's, um, it is a, you know, a true national partnership mm -hmm. across the pheasant range. We've got, you know, contributors from uh, Washington, Oregon, uh, to the, you know, the kind of the heart of the pheasant range in the Midwest, and Texas and Ohio and you know, all points in in between. So, yeah. is it? It's an interesting position for fo folks to think about. Pheasants, obviously, they don't migrate, right? So they're under the um, kind of the administration, for lack of a better term, of each particular state, which is far different than waterfall that are managed collectively by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and joint ventures. And it it is a innovative way that your position came about where it's states manage on a state level, but through your position, it's sort of a sharing of the best research, management practices, strategy for things like the Farm Bill. It is. It is sort of a hybrid of states working together for the greater good of ringneck pheasants. Is that a fair articulation of what's going on? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there was a group uh, before this position called the uh, Midwest uh, Pheasant Study Group, where hmm. the pheasant biologists across the country, well, across the Midwest anyway, uh, got together usually over two years to kind of trade notes. Um, but this position is sort of the first attempt to you know, bring some kind of cohesive uh, multi-state focus on pheasants um, on an ongoing basis and to keep that conversation going you know between those two meetings or you know after the initial uh, addition of the plan was done you know kind of keep that conversation and that momentum going and uh, the partnership really focuses on kind of the, the nexus of science and policy and so mm -hmm. like you said a lot of uh, you know, a lot of pheasant management work and research work uh, is done kind of each state doing its own thing um, which which you know is fine but to really accelerate things we need to all be kind of rowing in the same direction and putting our resources together and getting answers to questions uh, quicker than we had been and then employing those results uh, more directly into our you know, our policy positions and conversations we're having with uh, folks that are trying to influence those decisions. So, uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully that's that's what we're doing. Um, and like you said, pheasants aren't a shared resource, so nothing we do, you know tries to favor any one state over another. It's all, 
you know, trying to get more resources for everyone and use those resources that we, that we do get nationally uh, in the most efficient way possible to get more birds out there for any, uh, for everybody. Yeah. yeah. It, it makes sense when you boil it down, how, how can the, um, some of the, all the parts, all the states work for the greater good of pheasants as a wild population across the country. And one of those, um, one of the responsibilities or outputs that you do as part of your job is you write a regular column that um, is featured in the Pheasants Forever Journal, sort of talking about the latest and greatest research. And we often print that column on the websites as a blog. And that's what grabbed my attention for this episode today. Um, certainly the, the baseball references in the title uh, was a, a sucker punch to, to my sensibilities and grabbed me instantly. But it was, um, uh, you know, something that we've all heard this question asked in many ways, shapes or forms um, over the years. So let me um, let me position it um, to you based on your own writing. Uh, and the fundamental question that you tackle in that blog, and you write, if given a choice, would we rather add pheasant nesting habitat to the landscape as a few big chunks or dispersed as a bunch of little ones? Putting aside for the moment that we are rarely offered a choice outside of the Conservation Reserve Program, CRP, um, a universally correct answer to this question is somewhat hard to come by. So take us through your thought process on tackling this, Scott, and that maybe lay out a little research that uh, research that leads us to your answer. Right. So the, the background of that question is, you know, uh, again, like, like we said, we often don't have a choice of, how big or how small mm -hmm. chunk of habitat that we want to create uh, is. It's sort of up to the landowner to, in most cases, to uh, make that decision, how much land he wants to devote to, he or she wants to devote to uh, a particular use. And so um, what we what we don't want to do as, as pheasant managers generally is to create something uh, that's termed an ecological trap. So that's putting something, you know, on the surface attractive uh, for pheasants um, out there, but that it turns out that it is to the detriment of pheasants to uh, for them to use that particular offering. So um, that could be in the form of kind of in the pheasant nesting world, the, the poster child for that is alfalfa, right? We... Um, we put these big chunks of nice, uh, thick habitats greening up right when the, the birds are um, choosing a place to nest. Uh, it's growing through uh, the nesting season and then it's, it's mowed. And so um, we've kind of pulled the rug out from under their, their natural ability to pick a good spot to nest by, you know, kind of pulling a fast one on them. Um, and then, you know, another example might be, you know, feeding uh, pheasants during heavy snow periods along roadsides. You know, it's a good intended uh, offering there, but 
it comes with risks that we try to avoid. So, um, so the question is, are these small patches of habitat when we, you know, when we can't provide a big patch, when we just are providing small patches, is that a, you know, is that an ecological trap? Is, are we better off without those patches um, and having the birds nest elsewhere, or um, are we okay providing those smaller patches? So, um, so it's it's not it's not a real straightforward um, situation to try to study because often when you're trying to study these things, ideally you'd like to you know, follow the fate of the, the hens that do choose to to nest in those um, small patch situations, but. Often, you know, like when we put radio tags on birds, you know, it's all—it's obviously up to them to, to go wherever they want to. And a lot of times they don't nest in the places that you think would be interesting for them to, to nest and where you want to study the effects, hmm. one choice over another. So um, folks have taken to, because of that, um, you know, it's a sample size problem. We just have small samples in some cases of actual nests um, that we can monitor in those situations. Um, the alternative to that is to use uh, what we call artificial nests, which are basically just uh, eggs, uh, you know, brown chicken eggs or uh, pin raised pheasant eggs that are placed in, you know, from our perspective, from a research perspective, uh, interesting places or in interesting situations where we can then follow the fate of those those eggs to see if they remain undisturbed or not um, over a chunk of time that is equivalent to what an actual nest would uh, experience there. So, Which is 21 to 23 days? For incubation, right. And yeah. then uh, they lay roughly an egg a day. And so those early nests are you know, a dozen or maybe a few more. So that's another couple of weeks on top of that. So that's one, that's another um, shortcoming or factor with radio tagged hens is that we can't really detect where they nest until they start incubating. So if mm -hmm. they lose a nest early in laying, we really aren't able to detect that because that bird hasn't really settled down to a spot that we can really locate. And so, um, so there's this pre-incubation period that with radio birds, we really can't um, monitor very well. And then that post-incubation period is you know, when we when we get the actual observations. Yeah. And so to synopsize this, you, what you're looking for is the, so you mentioned ecological traps. So you're looking to see if in smaller areas they're more susceptible, the, the nests are more susceptible to predation, right? right. Ultimately, right. this is about predators finding nests in small areas, which we intuit to be true, versus larger areas. In the, one of the variables that's out of the mix with kind of these manufactured nest sites is the scent associated with the hen sitting on the nest. So that's a variable when you're creating these artificial ones. It's not in the mix, but again, just to set the stage for the experiment. Right, 
Right. When the, when the researchers uh, who are using the artificial nest approach, you know, they're trying to pick places. They're usually some you know, random randomized way of placing these nests. Uh, but kind of once they get to their random random spot, they they try to emulate a pheasant nest as much as they can in terms of you know, not putting the eggs out completely in the open, trying to mm-hmm. um, match things as much as possible. But like you said, uh, you've got human scent involved in that case, which the researchers try to mitigate um, versus the, the scent of the bird. And so you know, it's not a perfect mm-hmm. uh, uh, corollary there. And so you have to take those results of the artificial nest studies with uh, a bit of a grain of salt. But again, there's there's just not a good way to get any kind of measurements uh, on some of these types of questions that we'd like to answer uh, any other way. So, sure. So it's providing the best science available to us given the circumstances. And so knowing some of the limitations, what's the science tell us? Is the those little spots valuable in the grand scheme of things, or is it the big spots that carry a ton of weight? Well, um, and I, I will mention that, you know, small patches wouldn't necessarily be a classic um, ecological trap because the birds can see how big or small a patch is that they choose to nest in. And so mm. you're, not, you're not providing some kind of false um, um, advertising there unless you you know are going to mow that patch or whatever Um, so from that perspective the birds are free to choose or not um, to nest in that patch or any other patch that's available to them Um, but that said uh, you know most of the research either shows that uh, nest success is higher in bigger patches Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly towards the middle of bigger patches, away from the edge. Hmm. Or uh, the researchers are unable to detect a patch size effect. Um, what we haven't seen is uh, a study that indicates that nesting in smaller patches is advantageous uh, in any way to a large patch. It's either equivalent to or not as good as uh, a large patch, depending on the, the study. Okay. So the take home message is, uh, you know, to answer our original question, uh, would we prefer bigger small patches? We would still prefer bigger patches, uh, but that isn't a guarantee that those bigger patches are gonna necessarily offer better nest survival than than the smaller patches. Um, We don't get a universal um, big patch effect. Um, But uh, given the choice, we would still rather put our money on the big big patches. Mm -hmm. And when we say big patches, um, kind of the the biggest radio telemetry study uh, that looked at this question was out of Iowa back in the early 1990s, and uh, they defined sort of a big patch as at least 40 acres. Hmm. Um, That was sort of their threshold, Uh, but the uh, nest success uh, 
of birds was highest in patches that approached that 160 acre hmm. uh, quarter section size. And so um, their, their conclusion was that big patches were better than small patches, but at the same time, um, their results suggested that if you had, say, 160 acres to play with, you were probably better off um, with four 40 acre chunks rather than one 160 acre chunks. Once you got at least 40 acres, once you got into that big category, you were better off with several big patches, mm. one humongous patch. That's an interesting distinction. So there is sort of a sweet spot. It's not the little, you know, the um, the buffers or the ditches, like, and it's not necessarily the great big blocks. There is like multiple forties hold the greatest benefits for increased production. Is what kind of what you're saying? That was the conclusion of that particular one particular study in, in Iowa, right back in the 1990s. So. Um, again, we're, you know, we're, we're always feeling around on the elephant and, and mm. that particular day, that part of the elephant, that, that's what, uh, that's what the conclusion was. Mm. And you know, I would say most of the research since then has you know, backed up the bigger is generally better than smaller conclusion, but in terms of, you know, the 40 acre threshold and, you know, those kind of specific numbers that probably varies there's probably more more to the story than that depending on where you are in the in the pheasant range but uh, those are still pretty good rules of thumb i think that most biologists would not take issue with so i i feel like it's important to clarify at this point like this is all hypothetical you know and we started the conversation that way that okay given the choices like we'll take any habitat on the landscape for pheasants, for quail that we can get, especially 2023 when there's so much pressure on the landscape. And there's tremendous advantages to having buffers and filter strips and roadsides. That's not the question that we're asking today. We're just simply asking a very pointed question. Does the size of a block of habitat matter for overall optimum pheasant nesting success and based on the research the answer to that is yes the uh, a bit bigger 40 acres um on multiple 40 acres uh rather than a giant block does illustrate the re research does illustrate that that um appears to be the the most advantageous for nesting success i boil that down correctly scott Generally, although I would say that approach has been shown to be no worse than neutral. Um, so the it's in a worst case scenario, um, you aren't going to see much of an effect, um, positive or negative, which means, um, again, more is better. That's good. Mm -hmm. um, best case scenario, yeah, if you provide bigger chunks of habitat, um, you would expect to see a bump in your nest success. Uh, you know, so that's, that's the good news. Um, 
But again, I think, as I also mentioned in, in the article, um, nest success is just kind of one stage of the whole process. Mm-hmm. And so we'll always take higher nest success over lower any day of the week. But um, if you have other habitat deficiencies that are causing problems other times of year, then uh, you still may not be reaching your full potential from a overall population standpoint. And so, um, which is, that's the, you know, nest success is a means to an end, right? The, the mm. end is having more birds in the fall, um, primarily to chase around. And so um, we get there through increasing nest success, but we need, we need more than just that. Well, that's a good moment of transition. So as we record this, we're in the heart of planting season, um, habitat planting season, and people are thinking about what they want on their property. Land managers and public lands are, you know, doing habitat plantings, whether it's food plots, shelter belts, and winter cover, brood habitat with forbs and flowers, nesting habitat. Give us a little bit of just things to think about as limiting factors as a land manager approaches this spring in relation to what we've just talked about with nesting cover right well nesting cover is is the first thing we generally worry about as as a as pheasant managers Uh, nesting habitat is typically kind of the thicker uh, more grass dominated um, taller type of cover that provides you know physical physical barrier or physical screening uh, between the nest and potential predators. So pheasants are, uh, the hens are generally selecting uh, the, you know, the taller, thicker type of cover to nest in, um, selecting the, uh, the tallest and thickest stuff available to them. But then as those nests hatch, uh thick isn't really what we're looking for we're looking for more uh open cover which is generally more uh if if not forb dominated at least more forb or wildflower uh forbs and wildflowers are more a component or a visible component of the the plant community uh, with a more open ground structure, some bare ground under the canopy of whatever vegetation is there. So those chicks can uh, move around a little more easy and um, most importantly, find insects that they need to um, grow up and be happy, healthy adult pheasants. Um, those, Those insect resources tend to be more abundant in a more diverse, more forb rich type of plant community. So uh, this time of year, we're thinking about breeding habitats, and those those are the two uh, components that we're trying to provide. And because those two things are sort of uh, dissimilar, uh, and we often have, uh, we don't have unlimited space uh, where we can put these things, we often try to kind of split the difference uh, in our grassland plantings and try to make them diverse mm. um, and so you'll naturally given the soil changes and topography changes in the field or whatever um, 
if you have a, a diverse mix of both grasses and forbs, uh, you know, certain parts of that field are probably going to offer uh, you know, better forb growing uh, conditions and other parts of the field may be a little better on the grass end. And so we're trying to split the middle with that, that diversity within any particular field. And as a final layer, as we come out of a pretty challenging winter, um, tell us a little bit about how to inter um, think about winter cover at this time of year during planting season. Well, I, I would say that um, the winter cover or, or preferred types of winter cover are generally wetlands, particularly, you know, cattail or, or wetlands that provide some thick, sturdy um, cover that's going to stand up to snow. So in a lot of places in the pheasant range, that means cattail marshes. Um, so I would try to plan ahead and try to make sure that that type of cover, if you uh, have access to that type of wetland that you, um, that you plan to leave some of that. Um, and then the other, the other type of um, general winter cover we prefer is some type of shrub cover again that's going to stand up to snow um, and so that takes a while to provide and so you that's usually kind of a multi-year project if you want to provide uh, you know outstanding shrub cover that's going to take a while uh, it doesn't need to be a lot of the landscape with regard to a percent uh, it doesn't need to be huge and actually from a you know from a nesting perspective we would rather have a little less woody cover on the on the landscape than, than more when it comes time to uh, provide nesting cover um, but again those are the two the two things and, and sort of if we don't have the opportunity to provide e either of those in a timely manner things like uh, standing food plots that kind of thing can kind of um, replace that you know, some of those habitat characteristics particularly in the short term mm -hmm. and you know, even in, in the longer term uh, as far as attracting birds uh, for for hunters those are those are good good components to have on your on your landscape right so i guess the synopsis from my perspective is if if you're thinking about how to manage your own property, it, it really going down the hierarchy we just did. Nesting cover, number one, most critical. Very close second is bird rearing cover and the dominant, what we've talked a lot about at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever the last 15, 20 years. Pollinator habitat, flowering prairie flowers is really critical to be in in close proximity to that nesting cover. That's your your 1A and your 1B in habitat needs of ringneck pheasants. Number three is winter cover, cattails, um, brushy shrubs, and a distant fourth is food, uh, food plots, and having that correlated near or part of winter cover is a valuable component there, but rarely do pheasants 
die of starvation they can die of exposure so that's why you want the vertical structure the stuff that can stand up to the snow but circle back to the point i made right at the beginning nesting cover is 1a broodering cover is 1b and that's why you know we started this conversation really focused on that why does size matter so right. i thought that was a really interesting um blog you wrote and, and thought it would be worthy of a deep dive here is as we wrap this quick hitter, and I'm already over a half hour, <laughs> a quick hitter of a podcast, uh, any closing thoughts for people to, to consider, Scott? Well, I, I would say that, you know, the, one of the biggest challenges we have as pheasant managers is, um, you know, trying to mitigate the effects of things that are happening off the property that you're trying to manage right so the neighborhood has a large seems to have a large effect on how successful you can be as a as a single landowner within a particular landscape right so um in our in our modern landscapes um in most situations like like you reiterated it's that nesting and brood rearing cover uh, that is often limiting, you know, sort of on a broad scale. And so, yeah, the best way to mitigate that, if you're in a cropland dominated landscape with not a lot of nesting cover, um, your best bet is to try to provide that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, we, we provide those things with the, with the knowledge that, um, the neighborhood may not let us get uh, exactly where we want to go, uh, or may not mm. let us um, reach the the heights that you know some of our best pheasant ranges uh, give us because they got a better neighborhood. They don't necessarily have uh, a more committed landowner that you than you are or uh, your buddy is, um, just as committed, just as you know, doing all the right things, but uh the neighborhood is going to um is gonna have its say and so you can have the best shortstop in the in the major leagues but you know it takes pitching it takes uh hitting you know <laughs> it takes the whole team to, to to get things over the over the finish line right right out well said it, it does make me think about you know, when if you're looking to buy property for recreational bird hunting, there's some real advantages to buying around areas with state wildlife areas, grassland, like um, national grasslands or um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service lands, whether they be uh, refuges or waterfall production areas, because those la those landowners in your neighborhood are already helping establish a lot of that grassland habitat to produce more birds. Whether or not, you know, there's there's certainly going to be more hunting pressure in that area, but there's also more grassland to produce more birds. It, it leads me to one final question for you. Um, historically, we've talked about pheasants having, having kind of a home range of two-mile radius or thereabouts, at least that's the number we used in the early days of Pheasants Forever. Has that number changed? When we when you talk about 
the neighborhood for a pheasant. What what's the size of that neighborhood these days? That's a good question. And, you know, I, I would say our rule of thumb still is in the one to two mile radius um, area. And usually individual, most individual home ranges are less than that. They're more hmm. like a square mile or maybe a little bit more than that. Um, and that, you know, the birds shift around seasonally. So um, they can be using much smaller areas than that um, you know, for months on end, depending on the season. Uh, so that hasn't changed. What and so part of the challenge is uh, when you're trying to manage uh, a population of the, these birds. It's not only this. It's not only the birds that are on your place. Um, it's uh, you know if you have a a string of bad weather years and you have you know, populations you know take it in the shorts for a few years. Um, you know, where, where are the birds um, going to come from if, you know, to kind of repopulate those areas, mm-hmm. disperse from? And that's kind of what we think is this, is, is the importance of this neighborhood type of effect is what we call a kind of a meta population is kind of the term for it, where these small populations that are that occur on different chunks of habitat, they are all sort of interrelated or interconnected uh, by dispersing birds. That is, you know, most birds aren't leaving that area, but a few do. Mm. And that that's obvious to anyone that you know, creates habitat somewhere that's in a you know decent neighborhood. The, the birds find it fairly quickly and they take advantage of it. And they can often take advantage of it more quickly than their predators can. And so you often see a nice flush of birds, provided uh, you have a source of birds that can find that habitat in pretty short order. So um, so it's this, this interchange of birds uh, over time, you know, during good years, during bad years, um, that, you know, is going to determine what your long-term population is trajectory is, or, or at least have a pretty good effect on it. Um, so I think we've all seen, you know, situations where pheasants are in, you know, not that great a habitat, but because you've got, they're in a pretty good neighborhood, mm-hmm. uh, they can use that, you know, kind of the uh, mediocre stuff, uh, when times are pretty good and, mm-hmm. and the weather's good and, you know, no big deal, uh, but uh, they recede out of those areas when times are bad. And and you know, it used to be we had enough of those good and bad and mediocre patches all over the place. And so when we had a bad year, there were still pockets of birds here and there, and in in, usually in the better habitats that could then disperse and fill our fill our cup back up. But mm-hmm. um, as we've lost sort of the connections between those uh, good habitat patches uh, it takes longer and longer for birds to find some of these areas when uh, you know, we go through those up and down cycles to where you know they don't even find them uh, until we get the next bad winter or the next bad spring and so the cycle has to right. start again so that's that's what we think kind of the long-term problem is with pheasants is we've just kind of lost that interconnectivity. Uh, right. We lost the 
the neighborhood's gone downhill a little bit. Hmm. So we can never quite get back to where we were. And to bring this full circle, <clears throat> that's where some of this, these smaller nesting cover habitat patches do have a positive effect, these buffers, these ditches, because maybe they're not the best or as good of nesting cover as the bigger 40-acre blocks, but they allow the interconnectivity in times of good years for those birds to filter back and forth to these bigger blocks of habitat. So it does have that mosaic effect where it all works together serving different purposes. And to just reiterate, the point of this conversation was really about nesting cover, but it does come full circle to all of these, the hub and spokes, the mosaic, the full-blown neighborhood, whatever analogy you want, all of these habitat pieces play a role in improving the overall wild population of birds in a particular area. Right, right. And like I said, if, if you're giving... You'd rather give the birds as many choices as, as you can. And they're not all going to pick the best spots, but generally speaking, uh, you know, it's pretty high stakes for them to make mm -hmm. a good choice. And so um, if they, you know, a few of the, uh, the a few of the hens in some of those studies did nest in what would apparently be not so great places, but some of them were actually successful and more successful than you might imagine. And so uh, giving them a choice isn't necessarily, uh, giving them more choices is rarely a bad thing. Right on. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate you sharing your information and your time with us. You bet. It's fun. Uh, for Dr. Scott Taylor, the National Wild Pheasant Conservation Plan Coordinator, I'm Bob St. Pierre thanking you for listening and reminding you, always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.